Can you hear me now? Hey, there we go. Well, like I said, um, our family, it feels like, I know Hannah and Charlie have been sick, it seems like, for about three months. Um, just keep passing it back and forth, and she's actually been gone even a lot on some Sunday mornings. Um, and it was my turn, evidently, this week. So, actually, I sound a lot better than I did earlier. Earlier, I sounded kind of like Barry White. It was, it was really good. You know, I could, I could just lull you to sleep, honey-glazed ham. I mean, say stuff like that, it's just like... Sounds good when he says it, no matter what it is. And um, I also kind of sounded like Rod Stewart when I was singing. Like, start singing Maggie Mae or something. But hey, this morning, before we get going, um, last Sunday we had a a pretty exciting announcement. And uh, we announced that we had made a hire for our equipping pastor. And isn't that cool? And uh, God led us to, uh, yeah. And uh, Kirk and Annette, his wife Annette, are back today. And uh, Kirk, I'm going to give you the mic. I'll just ask you a few questions. That's okay. Put you on the spot here. You going to play the piano? Oh, there you go. Gotcha. I, I, only, I licked it, but it's, uh, I did. So just keep it away. Hey, that's, that's part of sharing in ministry. Um, <laughs> good to see you guys. Yeah, we're glad you're back. And uh, Kirk, I just want to give people an opportunity to meet you this morning. Um, and maybe I'll just ask a few questions on that. I told you I was going to put you on the spot yep. and bring you up. And, um, but you're going to start tomorrow yes. and uh, start moving the office tomorrow. So that's exciting. But why don't you tell people, uh, maybe they've seen your face, they've seen your greeting. Who are you? My name. Oops, might not be on. I testing. Didn't, didn't help you testing, out. testing. There we go. My name is Kirk Barker. I didn't sound like Barry White. No, it's not it? as good. That's nah, all right. I need to get a cold. Yeah, then I do. can sound better. Actually, my name is Kirk. My wife, Annette, uh, we've been in the area for, oh, roughly, I don't know, since 79 and 80 when we came to Grace. Uh, my wife and I got married then in 1983, been here, had four kids. Now they're all married, raised and married and uh, living in different places, two in Texas, one in Michigan, one in Lafayette. Um, we've been in ministry for many years, uh, as, the, as the letter indicated, uh, working with youth from the time we, we got married to uh, being missionaries in Norway for eight years, to um, uh, lead pastor at a church for four years, and uh, then uh, been at Menard's last two. But uh, done a lot of things. As you get to know us, and we hope you do, we pray that you'll get to know us because we want to get to know you as your equipping pastor. Uh, that's, our, that's our goal, is to get to know you and to find out who you are, what gifts God has given to you, and how we can plug you into the ministry. Yeah, right on. Um, so you guys have been here for about two years. Mm-hmm. And so tell us, you were actually the first one to apply. Before we were ready to take applications, we announced it. It was a year ago last Sunday, we announced it. And Monday morning, I had an email from Kirk in my inbox with his resume, with all his info, and just really excited. And it was about two months really before we started searching. Um, And we just kept coming back to, to, you were the man the Lord led us to, we believe. And uh, so Kirk, tell us why, why, why we see, what are you excited about here? What do you see? See happening. Oh, it's an interesting, uh, long journey that God has taken us through over the last two years through a desert and healing and uh, growing is in the process of some pain and, and some things that we dealt with. But uh, about a year ago, well, two years ago when we came, uh, we were still, like I say, trying to figure out what what end was up has God had taken us through some difficulties. And so then as we began to grow and get closer to folks and Maybe when you first met us, we were, I wasn't the most uh, open. I was a little bit tender, so it was kind of a, uh, hey, nice, nice to meet you, but I don't want to get to know you yet. 
Um, but that, that has healed, thankfully, and uh, God does that work. But as we began to grow and to see what God was doing at Wawa C, we... <clears throat> I'm an emotional guy too, so um, you'll find that to be the case. Uh, I wear my emotions right there, so if, when you see me, you'll know how I am and what I'm like. Um, so as we began to grow and see what God was doing at Wawa C, we just felt like it was our church, and we had began to grow to to love you all, and we're very thankful for that. Because when you go through some hard times, uh, you wonder. Does anybody love you anymore? Um, is anybody there for you? And especially as a pastor, there, there are very few people that are the pastor's pastor. And that's what I'm here for you as well. And Dan, both. Um, and so we began to, to grow and to get closer to you. And as we, um, as we were watching the church grow, uh, we heard that uh, they were looking for a youth pastor. And, of course, I'm well beyond those years. I used to do that all the time. Although <laughs> I love working with young people. I still do. And I look forward to getting to know you guys as well. Um, I can't keep up like I used to, but... Uh, you, can, it, you can take them out and catch them. Give it your best shot. <laughs> yeah, I may be 55, but you, I can still outrun some of you. But uh, we'll, we'll have a great time together. But as, the, as they presented that, we, my wife and I were starting to think, and I began to think, okay, Lord, draw my heart back to ministry again. What is it you want me to do? And uh, we thought, yeah, we'll just wait and see how the Lord leads. And, and we were continuing to heal. Then that day in March, a year ago, it was like, What? As Josh presented the need for an equipping pastor and the shift in years, and I looked at her and she looked at me, and it was like, this can't be. This can't be. And so I had a couple people actually talk to me and encourage me, said, you need to do that. That's who you are. And I said, okay, Lord, I don't know if I'm ready for this again. So I, we went home, prayed about it that afternoon, and I said, you know what? I'm sending, sending a resume. And so Monday morning I sent the resume and uh, and said, okay, Lord, whatever you have, buckle your seatbelts. We're, we're ready to roll again. Yeah. And you need to know we went through uh, many applicants, and we were given a list of almost 90 men from the Evangelical Free Church that really fit uh, the profile of this. Uh, I talked to dozens on the phone over the last uh, 10 months, and uh, really we just we came back to the fact that Kirk was the guy. And uh, so we really believe that the Lord has led that. This isn't a... Um, it's not, we, took our, we took our time with this and really sought the Lord in it. And, and I'm excited about it. I think he's going to be a great fit. And I said it in the letter, but I really think probably, Kirk, your greatest qualification is you've been here for a couple of years. And this is your church. This is home. And uh, so that's, that's helpful for us. That was one of the forward. hardest things to think about as we were talking to some folks this morning. They were so encouraging to us as we've come in this morning, and, and you've welcomed us now as, officially as pastor. But my wife and I kept saying, what are we going to do? It's home. We don't want to leave again. So for God to open a door and give us an opportunity to serve here is a blessing and a, and a path that was so far beyond my even, not even a comprehension. So we're very thankful that God brought us back here and kept us here. And, and it wasn't just a stopping point to wherever he had us going. Yeah. Well, one of the things we'll do is uh, we'll be sending Kirk out to all the small groups. And you'll have an opportunity to, to invite him into your, into your 110 group, into your small group, get to know him. Um, and, and all that over the next few weeks, you're going to be preaching in two, yep. two weeks two on weeks. Palm Sunday. And, if, uh, so if I'd have been on now, I would have been able to jump in for you too. Yeah, as I know, well, right? So I, I apologize. Okay. I was like, man, I wish I could <coughs> jump no, up right. here for you. That's right. Um, but let's pray for Kirk. And then tonight we have a prayer gathering at 6 PM 
And uh, are you guys going to be around yep. tonight? Yep. Well, then sure. we'll for can sure pray over before you Before we tonight. pray, can I, I just want to, I want to share something with you real quickly. Maybe some of you have wondered too, and I've had a lot of people ask me this, if you don't mind for just yeah, a couple of minutes. Um, a lot of people have asked me, what is equipping pastor? I mean, literally, virtually everybody that I tell that says, um, I only says, know of two other churches that have a pastor by that title. Yeah. And, and when I tell people, they go, oh, that's great. What do you do? <laughs> and 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 that honestly, Rocky Rocky asked me that question in um, in the board meeting. He said, "Put it in a in a in a statement. What is an equipping pastor?" And I, I sat there and I thought about it because I read the job description. You've read the job description. You all go, "Great! Uh, what's he going to do?" Um, and so it, it really it comes down to Ephesians four eleven. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. When I thought about how that, what that looks like, I, I considered, okay, how do you put it in a in a nutshell? And and really, the ultimately, it's a relational pastoral relationship. It's a pastoral position where I'm going to get to know you. And you need to get to know me because that's the only way that I'm going to be able to, to take you and, and be able to fit you into the areas that God uses your gifts to your best ability. And so as we get to know each other and as I help, um, as I help to grow you to the equipping for the edifying of the unity of the body to the knowledge of the son, I'm going to it really it's it's helping you to grow and helping you to go. That's the easiest way to put it. But it takes involvement from both parts. As the equipping pastor, that's my job is to help you to grow and then to help you to go into the church to minister here, into our community and around the world. And so as we work together, I have to ask you as a church, are you all ready to participate? Because if you're just going to sit on the sidelines, I can't make you, I can't make you play as a coach. Pastor Josh can't get you involved if you just want to sit on the sidelines. So that, therefore, it, it takes all of us to be able to say, okay, am I ready to go? I, I don't know, coach. I don't know. Well, you know what? I know you can do it. And with God's power through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and the equipping of the saints, of which I'm here to do, walking side by side with you, we can. So my question and, and my, my request for you is your commitment to me and to Josh and to this church. Are you ready to get involved in the game? That was a little weak. Are you ready? So, so am I. Yeah. Let's pray. We're, we're thankful uh, for Kirk. And again, why don't you join us tonight at 6 p.m.? We're going to pray for our church. And uh, we'll spend some time praying over Kirk and Annette as well. Uh, but let's just pray together now in case maybe you can't make it tonight. Uh, Father, thanks for Jesus. And thank you for Kirk and Annette and your work in their life, Lord. Decades of serving you in ministry. And, um, even though he's really been on, on uh, kind of a forced sabbatical here the last couple of years, um, you've worked in his heart over that time, and uh, you've encouraged him and, and brought him here, Lord, in your sovereignty and in your providence. So uh, pray for his grace, or your grace to him, and uh, pray for each of us, Lord, that as, uh, as he fills in gaps that, uh, that, I've, that I'm weak at and... Um, and that I haven't had time to do well. Lord, you might prosper our church for Jesus' glory, others' good, and our joy. So we love you. We thank you for Kirk and for Annette, for your protection and your blessing on them as they transition, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Yeah, you bet.
So today we're in Haggai. And as part of the book of Haggai, um, it's a short book. Did you know that? It's the second shortest book in the Old Testament. The only one that's shorter is Obadiah. Some good names in the Old Testament if you're looking for names. I don't know if I'd name my son Haggai, but Haggai is quite a man. And uh, we're continuing in a series called Heroic. And we're looking at the Old Testament books of Ezra and Haggai. Well, last Sunday we finished the book of Ezra. And today we start into the book of Haggai. And what we're going to see in Haggai is a prophet who's, the title of the message is Stirring the Pot. (laughs) He's stirring the people to action. He's stirring them back to trusting the Lord. They've been complacent uh, for about half a generation leading up to Haggai's ministry. He's stirring them back up to stepping out in faith. He's stirring them out of their complacency. He's tired of waiting on people to get in the game. Kirk's comments just there were pretty fitting as an intro to Haggai because that's what he's waiting on is for people to, to step up and do something. Quit being complacent, in a sense. He's seen God. See, see Haggai, you're going to find out. Um, let me give you a little background on the man. He's an old man by the time he writes this. And the reason is, do you remember the whole story? And maybe you weren't here, so let me give you just a background on where we're at in terms of God's story. Uh, in, in Ezra, all of God's people at the beginning of Ezra have been taken into exile because of their sin. And they're in, in modern-day Iraq, uh, present-day in that day, Babylon. And uh, God had, had uh, disciplined them because of their sin. He removed them from the land. He caused the temple to be destroyed because of their sin. And then he, but, but before he took them out, he made a promise. He said, We're gonna, I'm going to bring you back. And I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to restore you. But it's a time for discipline. And he takes them. And then now we, we get to the beginning of Ezra. And in the beginning of Ezra, they start coming back after 70 years in exile. And they start returning to the land, totally by God's providence, we saw a few weeks ago, right? Totally by God's sovereignty and his providence and his faithfulness. He orchestrates all the events to start bringing the people back to their homeland. Well, Haggai, uh, he's one of the guys who, he was there when Judah was conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, I believe. He, He was in Judah, in Jerusalem, and he gets taken into exile, probably as a young uh, teenage boy, late, late, you know, late single digits, early teens. He's, that's about the age he is when he goes. So he sees the original temple of Solomon. He sees it in all its beauty. He watches it be destroyed and he's taken into exile. And now he's in exile for anywhere between, depending on which time he, he got brought over and which time he goes back between 50 and 70 years. And now he comes back and he makes it back. So Let's say he was 11 during the exile, right? So, and let's take the early side. So 50 years. He's 61 when he gets back. And the temple gets going and it gets rebuilt. Well, actually it doesn't get rebuilt. Only the foundations get built, right? And then opposition comes up and they quit building. And it, it sits stagnant, nothing happening, no updates, nothing for 16 years. So I would argue that at the minimum, Haggai is about 75, 76, 77 years old at this time. I think he's likely in his 80s, if not older. He's an old man. And you have it in your notes there. Haggai is the old man I want to be one day. You know why? 
Because I notice that when, as we grow older, do you notice this in yourself? There's kind of three things that happen, or one of three things happens in our lives. Either we become uh, just kind of lazy and complacent and, okay, whatever, and I check out. That's option one, right? I retire, I go to Del Boca Vista, play golf for the rest of my life. I'm, I'm done. Count me out. That's one option. The other option, option two, is I think sometimes we just get grumpy and critical, that's not the way I would have done it. That's not the way I used to do it. You know what the way that is, though? That's a cover for fear and for insecurity. Usually somebody who's really critical, really grumpy, is generally insecure at their heart somewhere, fearful of what's happening. So there's those two options. And then there's the third option, which I think, maybe there's some others. These are the three that came to my mind this week. There's, there's Haggai's option, which is to engage and to pass on his faith, and to pass on the teaching of God's word to another generation for another move of God, to outlive himself. And that's what I think we see in Haggai. It's an old man who engages. And I kind of laughed, you know, he, he, he writes a really short book. Maybe he was out of energy and didn't have enough energy to prophesy much. I don't know. He, he gave what he could, did what he could, in the place he was at, for God's glory, others' good, and his joy. Haggai's the type of old guy I want to become one day. Pouring myself out into generation after generation, way outliving myself. Because you know what? There's a date circled in red on my calendar. It might be tomorrow. It might be in 20 years. It might be in 40 years. But there's a, there's a date circled in red on my calendar where I have a meeting set with my maker to give an account for my life. And may I never become complacent. When I become fearful, may I repent and turn and trust him and continue being faithful. Amen? I believe Haggai is one of those guys that we can emulate. Um, with that, though, let me pray. And then we're going to move through, um, through the outline fairly quickly this morning. And we'll pick up any pieces I miss next Sunday. Does that work? And we'll sing some more this morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus and for your grace to us through him and for the examples of, of men and women in scripture. Uh, Lord, especially like Haggai, who are faithful, uh, even, I believe, here in his old age. Uh, might you give us the grace and the courage to live a lifetime of following you, a lifetime of pouring into your kingdom, of, of outliving ourselves in whatever way that might look like, whether it's in our in our giving, in our teaching, in our serving, in our praying. Lord, would you do that in us? We're going to see here in the beginning of the text the people who had become complacent, who had turned their eyes, Jesus, from you to themselves. And if we're honest, we confess we do it all the time. We do it all the time. I do it. None of us are immune. So turn our hearts as we sang, set our hearts back on you today. Holy Spirit, teach me even as I teach. And um, when you want me to be done, you'll let my voice run out. And uh, Lord, we love you. Thanks for Jesus. Teach us this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Haggai chapter 1 begins like this. By the way, I should show you this. Um, you notice in your Bible, you ever wonder how your Bible is put together? How like if... Like if you took your Bible and you started reading in Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation, there would be some times where you'd read about the same story three, four, sometimes five times. 
like it was being told for the first time. And you're like, I think this already happened. Like I read this back at where, do you know why that is? I, I'll be honest with you, growing up, this was never taught to me, so maybe this will be helpful to you. But the way that your Bible, your English Bible is constructed, it's actually a group of books, right? And the Old Testament, there's 39 of them. In the New Testament, there's 27. And the way that they're organized is not strictly in chronological order. Generally chronological, but there's a caveat before that. The first way they're organized is by type of literature or genre. So I'm going to show you this here in a second. In the Old Testament, there's basically three genres of literature. There's history, there's wisdom or poetry, and there's prophecy. And then in the New Testament, there's, there's, a, there's three as well. There's, there's kind of history or gospels, there's letters, and there's prophecy and revelation. And so what happens then, especially, this is more evident in the Old Testament, they're arranged by type of literature, and then in chronological order, in generally chronological order, inside that type of literature. That makes sense? So when they're putting the Bible together, the guys who, are, who, who God led to do this, they gathered the books. They said, okay, here's all the books of history. And they put them in order from Genesis up through Nehemiah or Esther. And they all kind of, now it's not total chronological order. I'm going to show you in a second, but generally that's the way they're organized. And the first five books of those are called the law or the Torah. So in the Old Testament, whenever you hear uh, the writer refer to the law or the Torah, they're talking about those first five books of the Bible that Moses wrote. The next group of literature, if you're following in order, is books of wisdom or poetry. And from Job to Song of Songs. And again, they're generally in chronological order. There's Job, and then there's Psalms, mostly by David, and then there's the other three, mostly by Solomon. And then the third group of, of literature is prophecy. And you go there. Now the, now, the prophecy is actually divided into two groups. There's major prophets and minor prophets. And each of those categories are in chronological order. Now, the major prophets aren't major because they're cooler or they're more exciting or they're, you know, they're just, they're better. They're major because they wrote more. You ever take an astronomy class and like you, you hear about different stars and uh, different constellations and there's major and minor? Major just means bigger, just means bigger. So those books are bigger. They wrote more. The minor prophets, those prophets wrote less, so they're called the minor prophets. But each of those categories, the major prophets, generally chronological order, then the minor prophets, generally chronological order. Does that make sense? You with me? Now here's the deal. So when we get to Haggai, if you look at your Bible, like Ezra was right in the middle of the Old Testament, but Haggai's way towards the end. What in the world? What happened in between? You're telling me this is the same story? Well, when you start to pull these out and put it in a strictly chronological order, here's kind of what it looks like. They go like this. And it goes from Genesis up through Nehemiah. Esther actually happens in the middle of Ezra. Haggai is a prophet during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. So the only reason I show you that is just to help you. If you're thumbing through your Bible and you're like, well, what about all these books in between? What happened in between? Why are we skipping all that? You've got to understand the way that the Bible is put together isn't necessarily in strict chronological order. Yeah, yeah? Some of you are like, oh, that's, I, I'm so lost. I, that's okay. Those of you who are just curious and never understood that, maybe that was helpful for you. And now we're all back. You ready? So Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, <coughs> in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. 
the word of the Lord came to Haggai. Um, Haggai, we notice we have prophet, priest, and king here. These three roles Jesus will fulfill perfectly one day. You've got Haggai the prophet, Zerubbabel, or excuse me, yeah, Zerubbabel the governor or king, and, and Joshua the, the high priest. And this is happening during the first part of the book of Ezra. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts means Lord of armies. These people, so in other words, Haggai's speaking with some authority here. It's the guy who, who runs all of heaven's armies speaking. These people, God says to him, they say the time hasn't yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now remember the context? They had been brought back from exile. Haggai came with them. And at first, in the beginning of Ezra, it's like it's pretty exciting. All kinds of cool stuff is happening. And God provides in big ways, and, and they, they build the foundations for the, the, to rebuild the temple. But then opposition comes up, and they stop. And they don't just stop for a little bit. They become complacent. And now it's been 16 years since the foundations have been built. Imagine some of you, uh, if you were building a house, uh, you, you poured the foundations in... Um, in 2002, and uh, that's, that's all you've done on your house so far. Can you imagine? What, what would you think? Uh, I guess that's not going to happen, is it? Maybe that's not going to happen. That, that's basically what's going on here. He's been waiting 16 years. And, and the Lord says to him, these people say, well, the time hasn't yet come. Evidently, in their complacency, they said, ah, somebody would maybe would come up and be like, hey, are, you, are we ready to start again? But, oh, not yet. Not yet. It's a little risky right now. The economy's not good. I don't think now's the time. So they wait another five years. Okay. How about now? Can we start now? Mm, I don't know. I don't know if we've got enough work right now. I mean, we're kind of in a downturn uh, in terms of people who, who are here, and there's, just, there's not enough people to do it right now. I don't think so. Not now. Eventually it gets to 16 years this has happened. And God's like, hey, the people keep saying it's not time yet to build the house. When's it going to be time? In other words, God is asking. Why do you keep procrastinating is what he's saying to Haggai to say to the people. And then verse 3, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Haggai actually has four very short messages he gives to the people. And they all begin this way. The word of the Lord came to the hand, came, came uh, to Haggai. And they, they stretch from uh, August to December, uh, all in the same year. Here's what God says to him. He says, so um, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So it's not time, in other words, God says to finish my house, but it's okay to build yours. Now, was it wrong for the people to build houses for themselves? Absolutely not. They came back from exile. They needed a place to live. They, they, that's, that's fine. Is it wrong for you to build a house for yourself? No, it's fine. If God provides that for you, you have to be able to do that. The problem was they did that all at the expense of ever engaging again in God's work. And they became complacent. And, and look, he says, uh, your paneled houses. Paneled houses could mean one of two things. It could either mean uh, simply houses that had a roof, a panel, um, or it could mean houses that were somewhat extravagant, that would have had actually wood panels on them. 
in any case, the people have nice homes, adequate homes. And they're living in those homes while God's house has sat in ruin for 16 years. Weeds, cracks, overgrown, still all the rubble from the previous, previous demolition. You remember in Ezra what happened? They went, they saw it, they got uh, timber from Lebanon, brought down the Mediterranean Sea, floated down and brought to them all these cedars. And they had all those and, and all the stone, uh, most scholars agree that the stone from when the original temple was destroyed was probably just reused again to build it. And, but they had to have these timbers to rebuild the structure, which would all have been destroyed probably in fire when it was destroyed originally by, by Nebuchadnezzar. And so maybe you've got big piles of timber, except um, what you're going to see here in a second is I think maybe the people took those piles of timber and used them in their own home rather than using them to build God's house. Because Haggai actually tells them, go out and cut lumber. (laughs) What happened to what they had? And uh, he goes on. Uh, He just says, yeah, is it time for you to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? The problem was they'd become complacent. They, They had come back by the hand of the Lord. They had recognized his provision and all of it. They even celebrated Maybe they even had signs up in their homes that said, it's all about Jesus. Or is it? (laughs) See, that's the question I think we got to ask ourselves. We say that, right? We got signs out there. We say, it's all about Jesus. And I'm not saying, I'm saying as a church and as individuals, I got to say this to myself. Is it? Is it, Josh? What's the story of your life telling? Is it, is it all about Jesus? Or is it all about Josh? Is it all about you? What's your life story saying? Haggai's challenging them. He's stirring the pot. He's stirring them back to the Lord. Again, it's not wrong for them to have houses or to decorate them or even to have a nice house. The sin is that they've neglected God's work in the midst of their own. It's not a sin to be rich either. Do you know that? Sometimes you ever hear people, they're like, um, well, I, I know the Bible says that money is the root of all evil and that, uh, the, that rich people fall into a snare and a trap. You ever hear people say that? There's one problem. The Bible doesn't say that. They get it from this verse, from uh, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, these verses actually. Paul writes this to Timothy. He says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Notice Paul doesn't say that um, the rich fall into a snare and a trap. He says those who, what is it in verse 9? Who desire to be rich can fall into a snare or a trap or temptation. And he doesn't say that, that money is the root, the root of all evil. He says the love of money is a root of many kinds, not all, many kinds of evil. Basically what he's saying is it's your heart. And that's, who, that's what Haggai's after here. The, the people have, have invested all of their resources, all of their time into building their own homes for themselves. And they've neglected the work of the temple of the Lord. And Haggai's stirring the pot and the Lord is speaking through Haggai and he's saying, hey, where's your heart? Because if, if I look at what's happening, it's not with my plan, it's with uh, your plan. Isn't that true? Don't we fall into that same trap 
as individuals where we get selfish and we turn to ourselves rather than to maybe what God would have us do to varying degrees in our life. I, I just bring this up to say, hey, what is it for us? Is Jesus really first? Is it really all about him? That's the question uh, Haggai is really asking them that the Lord is, is saying to them. How, how, so it's not yet time? When's it going to be time? What's this all really about for you? And then he keeps going. He gives them, um, through Haggai, starting in verse 5, he gives them a remedy. The, the one thing they can do to figure out whether or not it is truly all about the Lord or if it's all about them. And it's something that, that correlates right over into our lives where we can examine our lives and, and ask, is it truly all about Jesus or is it all about me and my desires and my wants and how I think everything ought to go? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. There's one way to find out where your heart is. Consider your ways. To reflect on your life. As Paul writes, to examine your life. To look at your calendar, to look at your checkbook, to look at, to talk to people who are close to you. Consider your ways, the Lord says. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Evidently, they had had a desire to be rich, didn't they? They worked hard to to fulfill themselves, it sounds like, from the text, and to to line their own pockets and to build their own homes, which, again, there's nothing wrong at a face level with any of that. The issue is their heart. Why were they doing it? Was it so they could serve the Lord more, or was it just to get what they wanted? It's a heart issue. Jesus doesn't want your stuff. He wants your heart. Amen? Amen? You've been working hard. You've been working extra jobs to make more money, but it's like you're putting it into your pockets and and there's holes in your pockets. It just keeps falling out. You got to consider your ways, man. And you know, it's not just considering our ways with our finances, right? Doesn't this apply to everything? Uh, Maybe our time. Man, it just seems like I never have enough time to get everything done I want to get done. Consider your ways. This is a tough one for me. I got to learn to say no to more stuff so that I can say yes to the right things. Uh, Consider your talent. How are you using your talent? Your your treasure, your circumstances. Have your priorities changed because of following Jesus? Consider your attitude. Why is it that everything seems to be awful? Consider your ways. Consider your career. Why is it I can't get ahead? Well, consider your ways. Consider your health. That's one for me right now, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I'm sick today, but I've been kind of sick for a while and um, not doing well. Um, 
was at the doctor about six weeks ago and had a physical and uh, found out my blood pressure was, it's down now, so I can share this with you without freaking out, but it was 195 over 125. It had probably been there for a while. I got home, was looking it up online, and uh, the American Heart Association says when, when you get above 180 over 110, you're supposed to call 911. <laughs> I'd been living at crazy high blood pressure. Combination, I think, of genetics and stress and everything else. And I've had to consider my ways. What am I eating? Um, what am I doing physically to keep in shape? Listen, whatever area, consider your ways. Consider your ways. That's the, that's the word of the Lord to you. Is Jesus at the center or not? Well, consider your ways. Here's what he says then. He goes on verse 8. He says, To the people, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. He gives them a remedy. He gives them an exhortation to get their priorities back in line and to get back to work. But remember I told you, the Haggai tells him, tells him to go up into the hills and cut wood? Well, one of two things probably happened. Either all the timber they had gotten maybe had rotted in this time because it just sat there unused. Or uh, some believe that they took that and just used it in their home. Ah, they won't notice a little bit missing. I'll just use it for a panel in my house. And God's work was neglected. Notice uh, God's going to take pleasure in them building the temple. You know that whatever it is you set your hand to do, Whatever your career is, whatever you're good at, you're a painter, you're a teacher, you're a doctor, you're a lawyer, you're a factory worker, it doesn't matter. That whatever you do, as long as you do it with all your might as unto the Lord, that he takes pleasure in that. Just like he would take pleasure in them doing the work of rebuilding the temple here. The key is your heart. Why are you doing it? What's what's the root motivation? Verse 9, you looked for much, the Lord comes back beats the horse again here. You, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, it, I, I notice, God says, I blew it away. Why would God do that? Why would God blow away their wealth? Why would God blow away their efforts? That's kind of mean. Like, I, that's like my little brother when I was little, and I built my Lego fort, and they came and kicked it and knocked it down. That made me mad. Why would God do that? Well, he says, well, why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins. That's why. God, listen, God's heart toward us, loved ones, is always, no matter what we're caught in, whether it's, it's sin, sin of selfishness or whatever else, he would rather see us um, broke and poor and penniless with our eyes looking nowhere else but up at him than bless us with the greatest wealth in the world because he wants our heart. And he wants your heart. Consider your ways. He'd rather see me sick and having to rely on him more than trying to do everything on my own when I shouldn't so that I turn my eyes on him. Consider your ways. Therefore, the heavens above you, the Lord said, have withheld dew. He's like, I'm trying to get your attention. Hello, Mc, you know, like, back to, hello, McFly. The heavens above you withered with the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. Or withheld, excuse me, not withered. He caused drought and famine to get their attention. 
And I've called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. And then in these last four verses, we see the people have considered their ways. And they start to put the Lord first again. And for us, listen, when you consider your ways, you know what the step back is, part of repentance? It's obedience. It's turning back to the Lord and obeying Jesus. You want to put Jesus first? You want to make it all about Jesus? Obey his commands. Obey his commands. That's what happens here. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. That's great news. They obeyed as the Lord their God had sent him. It was a word from the Lord, not from Haggai. I can't tell you how many times I'll get up and preach and I'll hear from a handful of you throughout the week, oh, the Lord spoke to me in this way. And like, wow, that was nowhere near where I was thinking, but that's amazing. That the, It amazes me all the time how God uses his word, not through Josh or through whoever or through Kirk or whoever's preaching to teach us, isn't it? No, this isn't Josh speaking. This is the word of the Lord. Believe the word of the Lord. And the people feared the Lord. Verse 13, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. He said, I am with you, declares the Lord. Isn't that great news? Jesus promises us that, doesn't he? If we would repent, turn to him, obey, reach out with the gospel, put Jesus first. And he, he is with us the whole of every moment to the very end. And then the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. You remember he's the governor. And the spirit of Joshua, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. God used Haggai to stir the pot. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the month and the sixth month and the second year of Darius, the king. They turned back to him and they obeyed. I don't, I don't know the situation for you in your life. I don't know what the Lord's dealing with you about. I don't know what the struggles are in your life, but maybe part of it is you just need to stop and the Lord's telling you today, consider your ways. Think about it. Is Jesus really first? If not, repent. It's a daily thing, loved ones. And obey him. And he says, I am with you, declares the Lord. Amen. Let me pray. We're going to take our offering and sing and call it a morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. <coughs> thank you for your grace to us through him. And uh, Lord, that you, uh, even when we stray, when we're unfaithful, Jesus, you're faithful. That you continually call us back to you. So uh, I pray this morning uh, for each one who hears my voice. Uh, for some, uh, maybe it's a crisis of finance or of relationship. Or for some, it's simply the crisis of never having trusted you with their life, Lord. Would you give them a moment to, to sit and think and consider their ways? Holy Spirit, would you reveal to them where uh, maybe they've strayed and turned from you? In your grace, would you draw them to repentance, to turn back to you, to trust you? to uh, embrace your mercy, to embrace your grace. 
And would you change them, remind them that you're with them, that you love them? Lord, might we do that as a church and as your people? We love you. Thank you for your word. Sometimes a hard word, but a kind word because of your love to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name.